wildly obsessed with 9-11. Maybe it's because it's the most important event that happened in my lifetime and I wasn't around to remember it. Maybe it's because the war on terror shaped my entire childhood and it was never explained to me. Teachers said, we're at war, but it never felt like America was at war. It was always so distant. Iraq, Afghanistan, I couldn't have picked out those places on a map. And yet I knew they hated us for freedom or something. But there was one day where the war was made starkly important. I was in 8th grade, walking down the hallway, when a guy grabbed me by the arm and said, Did you hear? We killed Osama Bin Laden! It was a day of USA chants and euphoria, because the entire mission of the war was finally over. Osama Bin Laden had done 9-11, and we had been looking for him, and now he was dead, and the war was over. Back then, I didn't think to ask why Osama Bin Laden had done what he'd done. I didn't ask why the war wasn't ending right after his death. And I didn't ask, why did it take the most powerful country in the world so long to get him? Welcome, folks all, to No One Is Competent, the premier history podcast, comedy podcast dedicated to telling you that all the generals, CEOs, politicians, and great men and women of the world are all awful at their jobs. I am Azalea, joined, as always, by my brilliant partner, Jay. How are we doing today? Doing good, doing good. Uh, It's interesting that we have... The two of us, you know, have pretty different perspectives on 9-11, given that I'm actually old enough to remember it, albeit only vaguely. Um, so that, and, you know, as you mentioned, it's the most important event and one of the most important events in our lives. And sometimes kind of just gets boxed away into some little category. People don't really think about what happened afterwards. Yeah, it's, like, too big to think about in many ways. Because, like, you know, even you only have very vague memories of, like, the culture war sort of fallout and how, like, the culture shifted afterwards. And I sort of grew up, like, breathing the air of conservative Georgia um, war on terror propaganda. And... Especially after the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan, I've kind of been on a frenzy to learn more about it, to have you teach me about it, and that's led to this podcast series. Now, I say podcast series, obviously this is episode 8 of No One Is Competent, we love people jumping in at any time, Uh, glad you're here, but this episode is a bit of a sequel to our episode on the Soviet-Afghan War. If you haven't heard that episode, you might want to listen to it before you jump into this one. You see, we lay a lot of groundwork into the basics of Afghanistan and Afghani culture in that episode and sort of the history of the region. And we're going to jump off into this episode, skipping some of that background info so we can kind of get straight to the hunt for bin Laden. And if you don't know that, things might be a little slippery for you. Yeah. Not required, but just a suggestion. Man, Jay, we worked really hard on that episode, didn't we? Yeah, yes, we did. I, you know, I think I've actually done more research for that episode than any of the previous ones. 
Before we jump into things today, I just want to remind you guys that a big way you can give back to this podcast that has no sponsors and no advertising is to tell your friends about it and share us on all sorts of platforms. We are on Twitter at not underscore competent. Is that it, Jay? That's correct. Yes. You would think I could just like open a Twitter a tab and go to Twitter and look at that, but I did not. Um, I asked Jay, like, Jay's basically my search engine. Like, it'll be two in the morning, and I'll just be like, on Discord, yo, where's Angola? <laughs> and he'll respond, because that's just what he does. So, please tell people about this. Spread the news far and wide. Uh, scream at your yoga instructor scream at your mechanic about how great no one is competent is please review us on whatever podcasting app you're on apple spotify that really helps bump us up get people talking about us if you're on youtube please like share and subscribe you can comment um down below ask us some questions you can also reach out to us at the email no one is competent at gmail.com i again am azalea also known as wyatt i'm at azalea wyatt on twitter very handy there and you also find jay on twitter at jaharis 48 our music is done by the brilliant sam bryce and i think it's time we just slide right on the episode don't know if this is actually going to be a long one or a short one. You know, like, you remember in our second episode where I said this is going to be shorter than the first episode yeah. and then ended up being 15 <laughs> minutes longer? Yes. Uh, well, I suppose we'll find out at the end of this. So I guess there's no better place to start than, uh, who the hell is Osama bin Laden? Well, Osama bin Laden was born on March 10th, 1957, in Riyadh, the capital city of Saudi Arabia. So, what is Saudi Arabia? Oh, well, it's a good question. Uh, you know, it's, it's a name I think almost everybody's heard of, but a lot of people might not be familiar with Saudi history. So, just as a brief overview, um, Saudi Arabia, officially the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is a monarchy that's located on the Arabian Peninsula. You know, the Saudi royal family, the House of Saud, has been a powerful family in the region since the 1700s. Now... Some of y'all might be thinking that it's weird, like, why do we need to know about Saudi Arabia? You need to know about Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is incredibly important because of its ideological power in the world, in that it holds the cities of Mecca and Medina, which are very important to the Islamic religion, which we will be talking a lot about in, that e in this episode. Yes, and... They're also just very wealthy and powerful thanks to the fact that, you know, they happened to discover oil in the country back in the 1930s, and that helped them out quite a bit. Yes, and they've generally been British and American aligned ever since. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They had a, the rise to power in many ways was thanks to an alliance with the British, and then uh, we formed an alliance with them under, uh, under FDR. But, uh, yeah. So going back to back to the Saudis, their strength is not just based on uh, on their wealth, but also on the ideology of the Islamic religious movement, commonly known as Wahhabism. Now, the movement uh, Wahhabism was founded by Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab in the 1700s, 
And Al-Wahhab believed that Muslims had strayed from the proper way of belief in God since the death of Muhammad. And he viewed the veneration of things such as saints and spirits, practices which were especially popular amongst the Bedouin tribes of Arabia, as polytheistic heresy. You know, Al-Wahhab rejected the centuries of Islamic jurisprudence and the interpretations of Quranic scholars, and instead vouched for a return to the practice of Islam in sole accordance to his interpretation of the Quran and Hadith. Note his interpretation. Would it be fair to almost compare Al-Wahhab to an almost Martin Luther-esque figure, this guy who claims that uh, the body of believers has strayed from the original teachings of the text, uh, that um, idolatry and uh, sort of materialistic gain has taken over the religion. I'm kind of getting that sort of vibe. Yeah, now that would be a very apt comparison. And it is a comparison that people will make, albeit you know a little bit carefully, considering some of the uh, later implications or later things we'll talk about uh, in regards to Wahhabism. But that's not an unfair comparison. And uh, and and why would certain people be really uh, hesitant to make comparisons to Wahhabism? I mean, it just sounds like a guy who wants to get back to the fundamentals. You know, enough with all of this riffraff and uh, you know side quests. Let's focus on the one true God. Yeah, and if he simply kept that to himself or his followers, probably wouldn't have been that bad. But the thing with Al-Wahhab himself and his ideology is it ended up being quite authoritarian. You know, he believed that the government, the state, which he made an alliance with, that being the, the Saudis, should enforce his beliefs upon the population. And that they had to do this, because if they weren't doing this, then they were not working in accordance to the proper belief, and that would corrupt the entire nation. So as a result, it leads to a very authoritarian system of, of governance in society. And while it's not inherently expansionist, it's very easy to see how it could quickly turn that way. So I know that Islam has a tradition of uh, leaders called caliphs, the successors to Muhammad, that would set set up and rule a sort of state that is Islamic. But is there sort of like a concept of the divine right of kings in Islam that like, like you know you say that the Saudi royal family really attaches on to Wahhabism. Yeah, well, you know, they had formed more or less an alliance with Al-Wahhab himself back in the 1700s. And for, for them, it was a source of political legitimacy and, and popularity. You know, it gave them a rallying cry. In terms of divine right of kings, and the exact idea of God actually, like, investing power upon an individual ruler is not too, not too common. Um, the caliphs themselves are all people who, you know, had descent from either Muhammad or his followers. And some people today will try to trace their descent back to Muhammad. The Jordanian royal family, for example, still claims, you know, descent. But um, the idea that, you know, God himself is picking individual people to rule is not super common. And the Saudi royal family aren't declaring themselves caliphs. No. 
but they are saying that they are ruling their state by what they claim to be the true Islamic principles, and that anyone who isn't following their principles is wrong, correct? Yes. And this is very important because uh, the vast majority of Muslims do not live in Saudi Arabia. The country with the most Muslims in it, I believe, is Indonesia. You know, there's tons of Muslims in India, Pakistan, and there's you know places like Iran and Iraq where they practice a completely different sect of, of Islam, Shia Islam than the Sunni of the Saudis. But the reason what yes. the Saudis believe is so important is because, again, the Saudis have control over the cities of Mecca and Medina. Uh, now, quick pop quiz for the uh, listeners at home. What are the five pillars of Islam? Do, 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 do. Okay, you got your answer? You got your answer? Jay, Phil, uh, let, let, let them check. What are, what are the five pillars? Yes, well, the five, pillar, five pillars of Islam are the profession of faith, uh, prayer, the act of zakat, or giving uh, charity, fasting, and pilgrimage, the Hajj. And where is the Hajj? The Hajj is uh, it's in Mecca. Yeah, the process takes you from Mecca to Medina. And so if... Every Muslim is, if they're able, supposed to take this pilgrimage once in their life. And you controlled where that pilgrimage is, that would give you a lot of influence over most Muslims. It would, yes. Now, as you mentioned, the you know, Saudi wealth and control over the holy cities gives the country a prominent position in the Muslim world. It's hard to discern the true piety of members of the modern Saudi royal family, uh, but the ruling class as a whole does use their religion as a way of maintaining internal order and spreading Saudi influence abroad, mainly through the funding of mosques and Islamic groups throughout the, around the world. Uh, the result of this is that at least a fair portion of the Saudi elite view both non-Wahhabi Muslims and the non-Islamic West as fundamentally heretical, and their wealth provides them the means to act on those views. Like obscene levels of wealth billions upon billions of dollars oil money that you know we cannot even really comprehend uh so back to bin laden bin laden he's not a part of the saudi royal family right no but he is the son of mohammed bin laden who is the founder and owner of the saudi bin laden group a private conglomerate primarily involved in the construction industry. And it's hard to find exact figures, but one, Mohammed was likely a billionaire by the time of his death in 1967. Uh, but also, the Bin Laden group is almost ubiquitous in both construction in Saudi Arabia and sometimes in the Middle East in general. For example, they're the main contractor for the Jeddah Tower, which is slated to become the world's uh, tallest building when it's finally uh, completed. Jay, you want to take any bets on what the occupancy for the Jeddah Tower is going to be when it opens? <laughs> I don't know, 30% maybe. 20, 20, 23, 37. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, the Burj Khalifa, like, no one's in there, right? It's like not even yeah. 30, it's not even 50% occupied. 
something like that. So I'm putting together, let's just do a timeline here. Muhammad dies in, uh, so, so 67. So Bin Laden only knew his dad for 10 years. Yes. And gets a rather large inheritance from him uh, when he dies. Very important. Put a pin in it. The first thing you need to know about Bin Laden is that he's a Muslim from what he sees as the seat of Muslim power. The second thing you need to know is that this guy is billionaire for much of his existence in life. He is a billionaire. He is richer than you will ever be. He is richer than every member of your family will ever be put together for 17 generations into the future. Yeah, or, or at the very least, he's in the hundreds of millions in terms of his wealth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, it kind of becomes... Who gives a shit? Oh, Jay. <laughs> We're going to run into a pod... So, the big difference between me and Jay is that, like, <laughs> we haven't talked about our background so, so much of this podcast, but I write novels... Uh, for fun and hopefully eventually professionally uh, i've written three of them uh, i like storytelling it's probably pretty obvious um, but that's my background is on entertaining people with narrative jay on the other hand is professionally and academically trained in research history international relations and that kind of thing so one kind of tension between the two of us that comes up occasionally is like I will attempt to tell a great story, an emotional narrative, whereas Jay will hold on to my ankles and bop me over the head, trying to get me to conform to what's, like, true and shit. And, like, I, I don't know. See, but Some people are probably going to whine if we get, like, a single detail about, like, <laughs> how somebody laced their shoes wrong. They're going to leave, like, a... I guess that's what that'll be one of like the big sort of uh, we've made it points is when we get on our like YouTube comment section like a multi paragraph log screed about an incredibly minor detail that we messed up and how uh, silly we are for being yeah. wrong. And then we just delete the comments and block them. What? No. <laughs> what? Let the no no no. You just shadow ban mute them. Like let them scream. Hey. You gotta let people vent. That that's far meaner than blocking someone. <laughs> All right, like you gotta let them wear himself out. I'll take your word for it. So we we don't know a lot about Bin Laden's early life. We know that before, um his father died he didn't force a rather austere life on his family he was a devout worshiper religion probably would have been the center of uh, bin laden's childhood and education he grows up primarily in saudi arabia he spends a little time in syria that's what his mother's from uh, and eventually he would in secondary school uh, be exposed to the ideology of a guy named Saeed Katoub. How'd I do with the pronunciation there? Um, pretty good. Uh, though you're asking somebody who also is non-Arabic and does not speak Arabic. Um, 
I mean, to be yeah. fair, Q-U-T-B just is non-functional in all of the languages <laughs> that I speak, that being a single yeah. language. So I'm really just taking a pot shot at it. Yeah, that's what I'm doing as well. Okay, so like when we were reading uh, Jane Eyre and To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Osama bin Laden was reading works by this guy named Katoub. Yes. Uh, what was he doing? Katoub was a prominent member of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood whose writings are viewed by many as being the origin of the global fundamental jihadist movement. And the Muslim Brotherhood is like an international organization, obviously, of Muslims. But as I understand, it is often disliked by the rulers of various nations who see its sort of internationalist stance as a threat to their power along with their take on ideology. Oh, yeah. And uh, just for a, a little bit of uh, context, just on the region as a whole in the 50s and 60s, um, the Middle East is dominated by the Ba'athist dictatorships. These are in places, you know, in, in Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. You have secular dictators in charge who are very much opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. So um, Qutub is very much a, you know, anti-authoritarian force. Um, actually, because of this, he spends a few years um, outside of the Middle East living in America, uh, where he was disgusted by the social wars he observed, you know, the materialism, sexuality, feminism, essentially. Hated all of it. Does not seem like a very fun guy. And back when he was in the Middle East, he became increasingly frustrated with those secular dictatorships that had come to dominate the region. Um, he viewed their secularism as a corrupting factor that was fundamentally incompatible with Islam and thought that the influence of both American liberalism and Soviet communism threatened to annihilate the religion. The end result of this was that he advocated for a global jihad in all aspects of life to establish a just Islamic society. He advocated killing people in mass. Yes. <laughs> wars that where millions would die. Yes. He wanted this to happen. Yes. And did he think of himself as a Wahhabist? No. So because, you know, he's not from a Saudi background, he's from an Egyptian background, um, he wouldn't have thought of himself as a Wahhabist. Actually, Wahhabis themselves don't use that term for themselves, but his views are lumped into the broader category of Salafism, which is Wahhabism is also seen as a part of, and it's just generally speaking a broad sort of fundamentalist revival-based, you know, ideas about Islam. Is the, Are these, I don't know how to say this, like, ah, I guess we should do mass surveys. I kind of want to know, like, what percentage of Muslims are Wahhabists, uh, I'm sure a lot of them are nice people. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing with Islam uh, you have to remember is these things aren't quite like, you know, if you're a Protestant, for example, you know you're a Protestant. If you are an Episcopalian, you know you're an Episcopalian. If you asked a lot of people, you know, a lot of Saudi Muslims, are you a Wahhabist? Well, first, they'd probably get offended that you're using that term for them. The second is they would just say that, no, I'm a Muslim. You know, these are kind of schools of thought that are propagated by mosques and, you know, and imams who have particular views. But they're not usually 
branded in such a way that like you are this specific sect for life. Yeah, for instance, I'm a Methodist Christian, and there's a few people at my church who, you know, some old folks will tell you about the traditions of Methodism and, you know, camp meeting and testimony and whatnot. But most people like myself just identify as Christians and probably have never read the teachings of John Wesley, the guy who founded Methodism. Um, this is only important to a select group of people. Now, those select group of people are often rulers and often do a lot of the warrings. So they tend to be very important. Uh, they, they tend to shake things around, like Tube, who shook a lot of things around and was then executed in 1966 for plotting to assassinate the Egyptian president, Nassar. Nasser? Nassar? Who cares? I'm sure he cared. I don't care what he cares about. He's a dictator. Fuck him. <laughs> but his ideas became popular throughout the Arab world, especially in uh, disaffected young men uh, who are often the most dangerous uh, people in society. Especially if they have money. Especially if they have, like, over $30 million, which is what Osama inherits as soon as he becomes an adult and he also is the subsidiary no that's not the right the, the like beneficiary he he get he gets the dividends of the profits of his uh corporation i've seen a lot of different estimates about what bin laden's uh or i guess osama's uh yearly allowance was uh, the figure I've seen the most is seventeen million. By the time he got cut off, was his like, yeah, just money he got just for existing every year. Yeah, he he never like ran the company, did he? No, he didn't. Um, but anyway, a lot of people will sort of take pot shots at um. Osama Bin Laden's net worth over the course of his life. Uh, I imagine the uh, Bin Laden family is not uh, very forthcoming with this kind of information. But people generally speculate between $100 million and $300 million. But again, just know that this guy has more money than anyone and anyone in your neighborhood will ever dream of. Possibly everyone in your neighborhood combined. And uh, he didn't work a day in his life for it. He just got it for a living. Yeah. Now, what he did do is go to war. So, Bin Laden is born in 57. So, when the Soviets come knocking... Uh, into Afghanistan proper in December of uh, 79. Um, he would be 22, 21-ish. He'd be my age. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, got, got so many things in common with the guy. I mean, I have actually a lot more things in common with the people who uh, who who did who actually did nine eleven, like <laughs> the pilots and whatnot. We'll get to that when we get to that. But like, yeah, you know, uh, I know a lot of uh, you know in America, most of them are white, but we do have a pretty large problem of you know upper middle class or rich guys who you know get into their late teens and twenties with no real direction in life just kind of bumming around and then you know you start 
reading a little literature, you start, you know, looking around for something to do, you start believing really, really certainly about the absolute state of the world. And then, you know, you go to Afghanistan, you shoot at people. Yeah. So this is where so this is where being familiar with our Soviet Afghan episode is uh, going to be very, very important. Basically, during 78 and 79, in Afghanistan, there is a communist government that is aligned with the Soviet Union, though it is not part of the Soviet Union itself. And they uh, are trying to basically spread a secular modernization of uh, the countryside. That countryside is full of devout rural Muslims who then declare you know, jihad or, the, or you know, saying, well, we're going to fight for our way of life, which is Islamic. And they start fighting against the Afghan government, which then gets direct support by the Soviets who will invade in 79 and 80. That is the very short version. If you want to hear the long version, again, we did an entire podcast <laughs> on it. Please listen to it. Final thing, just to remember, if you haven't listened to the podcast, we're going to use the term Mujahideen a lot. Uh, you're usually going to see that word like capitalized with an uppercase Mujahideen, but Mujahideen is not a proper net. Like it is not like a faction term. There are many different factions, dozens, uh, uh, seven like important ones, but dozens of factions fighting the um, Soviets and communists in Afghanistan. They're all called Mujahideen because Mujahideen is literally just a word that means person who fights in the name of Islam. It's basically the Christian version of crusader, kind of, sort of, if you squint. Just know, when you hear the word Mujahideen, just remember, the only thing that says about them is that they're Muslim and they got a gun and they're willing to use the gun. That is actual, factual, the only thing that word means. And, uh, all right, Jay, take it away. Yeah, though, in the context of this podcast, we'll be using it in the way it's more narrowly used, which refers specifically to the Afghans who are involved in this conflict. Um, but yeah, unless otherwise noted. Yeah, so, so Bin Laden, as mentioned, travels to Afghanistan in 79, shortly after the outbreak of hostilities. And he would return in the 80s using his wealth and connections to recruit, fund, and organize foreign fighters coming into the country, as well as build his own bases in Afghanistan near the Pakistan border. So, do we know if he did any fighting of his own? Uh, it's hard to say whether he actually, like, was walking around with a gun shooting people. He does get injured in a battle later on. Um, this is sort of then used as a big part of, like, his story to promote to, like, his followers that he got injured in combat. But from what I can tell, it was a fairly minor foot injury. So, yeah, it's really hard to say. Um, you know, he would claim, obviously, to have been quite involved, but... There's no real evidence for it. Yeah, everyone shapes their own propaganda. Bin Laden is one of many Saudi elites who travels to Afghanistan. I assume there were Muslims from other countries who came as well. Yes. To get involved in the fighting and uh, help out their Muslim brothers against the atheist communist menace. But... Suffice to say, he 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 kind of takes a liking to it more than the average bear. Yeah, you know, he actually does stay there, which is not true for most of these people. 
a lot of guys are coming in, throwing around a lot of money, using it to build bases, using it to um, send in and fund guns. Like, we see, I have to wonder if, like, Bin Laden's experience or knowledge or connections to the construction industry, uh, if, if that ever came um, in, into play. I'm just, like, imagining Bin Laden yelling <laughs> at a guy on a backhoe. <laughs> Like, no, no, no. Like, it needs to be this tall to, like, get, uh, provide protection from Soviet, whatever, this is, the story is non-entertaining. Jay, what's the next bullet point? So, yeah, uh, when he was in the country, he would end up frequently butting heads with the Afghan Mujahideen. You know, they saw the jihad as mainly a defensive local issue, expelling the Soviets. Whereas Bin Laden increasingly viewed the conflict as just one part of the global jihad. Uh, the Mujahideen also thought that foreign fighters should be integrated under Afghan commanders, something that Bin Laden and his Arab supporters viewed as demeaning. Why so? Well, you know, a lot of it just comes down to racism, essentially, you know. A sense of superiority that came with the fact that, you know, they were the ones with all the money and, you know, Muhammad himself was an Arab, and that sort of leads to this idea, you know, the Arabs are better than other non-Arab Muslims, even though that won't be an official part of his ideology. But but Bin Laden's racism was well-documented. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, throughout his career, he would pretty much entirely surround himself with Arab followers and making the core of his operation almost entirely Arab. You gotta remember... Most of the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets are people whose villages do tons of subsistence farming, goat herding, and this guy is a multi-millionaire. Yeah, you know, fighting right next to him. There's gonna they don't, and of course they don't even speak the same language. There's gonna be some culture shock and tension there. Yeah, you know, he he was not a very important military commander in the grand scheme of things. Um, but he was wealthier than probably any of the warlords individually. Now, what fighting he did oversee did give him a taste for combat, and he was exposed to military training and thought for the first time in his life, uh, mostly through retired military officers from other Arab countries who came to join the fight. You know, he, Bin Laden himself, we haven't talked about the military before because he was not a part of the military. Um, this is really when he kind of figures that out. When we did our Soviet-Afghan War episode, we talked about one of the downfalls of the Soviet activity in the area was Operation Cyclone, which was a effort from the U.S. to funnel money, training, and especially weapons into Afghanistan to allow the Mujahideen to fight back more effectively. Remember, most of this was done through the intermediary of Pakistan, who was responsible for the vast majority of arms distribution and uh, training. It was—it's kind of like how uh, if um, the United States was the uh, engineer, then Pakistan is the contractor or the foreman like 
actually on the ground doing things. But it is objectively true that there was a period of time where people funded by who were ideologically aligned with, who were funded by, trained by the United States, were fighting alongside Osama bin Laden, where you could say somewhat fairly that bin Laden and the United States were on the same side. And there's a lot of people, especially on the left, who will claim that the U.S. funded bin Laden, uh, that we gave him money, that we partnered with him. And because uh, that is such a reasonable idea based on the proximity and based on they were both fighting the Soviets, I kind of wanted to take some time, Jay, if you could sort of so is there any direct link of the U.S. paying or working directly with Osama bin Laden? Yeah, there is no direct evidence for any connection between the U.S. government and bin Laden or any sort of funding from the U.S. to bin Laden. Um, There's never any evidence of any U.S. officials or officers meeting with the guy? No. Yeah, the... Uh, most of his funding came from himself and his wealthy associates. Uh, he was not particularly reliant on outside sources. Yeah. So, again, one of the reasons that bin Laden was allowed into the party in Afghanistan is that he was the guy footing the bill. So he doesn't really need to be associating with another group, the Americans footing the bill. Uh, based on his ideology, I really doubt he'd like to associate with them. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it's probably true that at some point, maybe during a battle, you have guys using uh, machine guns that uh, Bin Laden gave them next to guys using Stinger missiles that the Americans gave them. Oh, yeah, they're, they're all on the same team, so to speak. Yeah, Operation Cyclone was a massive endeavor of tons of different bank accounts it, the the americans made it incredibly difficult to trace any of the money and they routed it through many subsidiaries again most of it through pakistan itself uh and shredded and buried tons of documents so it's all incredibly murky but that's essentially the extent of uh bin laden's connection to the american government at this time though it is worth remembering that uh, the mujahideen in afghanistan were like a cause celeb of uh, americans at the time and, and were generally thought of in very positive terms now afghanistan would be the place where bin laden would eventually found the organization he's most known for and that of course being al-qaeda um Al-Qaeda, which is generally translated to English as the base, was founded in, in August 1988 by bin Laden, as well as Ayman al-Zahiri, a prominent Egyptian uh, who became a very close associate of bin Laden in Afghanistan, and their supporters. Fun fact, one of the most um, prominent uh, white nationalist terrorist organizations based out of Georgia is also called The Base, and I'm sure they were totally aware of that connection when they chose that name. I hope so. So, Al-Qaeda gets formed in 1988, and those of y'all who listened to our Soviet-Afghan War episode will know that the war was drawing to a close at the time. Soviets were pulling out, and the purpose of Al-Qaeda would be to continue this jihad holy war in other 
countries. At this point, Bin Laden's been working in the region for almost a decade. And, you know, he starts off as just this rich kid throwing money around. But, you know, that gives him leadership, especially just through... I, you know, just through raw time and hours, you know, you get good at something. And Bin Laden now has the organizational skills and resources. And uh, all Zawahiri... Close enough. Um, he's more of the experienced terrorist. Um, though Bin Laden is heading the organization. Remember, the Afghan people were mostly just trying to fight for their freedoms to live the way they wanted to live, whereas for Bin Laden, this is a never-ending holy war that he is going to dedicate the rest of his life to. Now, this is also when Bin Laden really started to uh, turn his attention towards America, motivated by the presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia following the first Gulf War. That's 91, right? Yes, and you know, Bin Laden himself had actually offered his services in fighting the Iraqis to the Saudi king, basically saying that, you know, hey, I beat the Soviets, even though he didn't really, um, other people did. You know, I can handle the Iraqis much better than the <laughs> Americans can. That would have been amusing to see uh, him get killed by the Iraqi army, but as we all know, that would not end up being the case. No, um, no, but, the, the Saudi kings are just like, nope, no, 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 no. give me the Americans. Get, we actually... We get the professionals in here. We actually have a document of, like, an exchange between him and the representative of the Saudi government. And, you know, the representative is like, so what are you going to do when they use gas? And then and he's like, we, we, we'll use our faith. <laughs> yeah, it's... Honestly, the Saudis turning him down probably saves his life here, though. I mean, unfortunately, he probably would have found a way to escape. <laughs> so Bin Laden is back in Saudi Arabia and American troops are stationed there at the time. And uh, my understanding is that Bin Laden basically th like sees the idea of American troops, which are uh, possibly Christian or, God forbid, Jewish, who possibly could have Bibles or Torahs with them, and them just stepping on, like, in Saudi Arabia, never even mind Mecca and Medina, to be, like, completely theologically unacceptable. Yeah, you know, it's this was his home country, the country that is home to the two most holy cities in Islam. And yeah, that's just utterly unacceptable to him. Bin Laden, of course, had absolutely zero problem with the oil exports to America, which funded all of his daddy's building projects, which gave Bin Laden all of his many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, funny, that. Yeah, just a, just a technicality. And he absolutely <laughs> had zero problem working with people who were completely financed, trained, and armed by the Americans in Afghanistan. <laughs> no. Also funny that. But yeah. Bin Laden would get a real, uh, a real stick in his britches about uh, U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia. He'd become very vocally opposed to the government, and this would get him kicked out uh, of the country, and his citizenship, his citizenship, use words right, brain, revoked in, I think, the mid-90s? 
Yeah, it's revoked in uh, 94. Yeah. So now he's on his own, and his full-time job is leading Al-Qaeda, which is going to be a jumping-off point for us getting into the ideology of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. But before that, uh, Jay's going to do most of that. I kind of want to um, make something clear here. I know there's a lot of people listening who are going to be somewhat quizzical or even angry that we are digging into what Al-Qaeda believes. And I want to be very clear. Uh, everyone who ever worked for or with Al-Qaeda is at the very, very best a very troubled and misguided individual. And most of them are rat shit motherfuckers who never deserve to breathe air. All right, Bin Laden is one of the worst human beings to ever be shat onto this earth in existence, okay? As we'll get into, he is a completely morally bankrupt, ideologically hypocritical, idiot failure of a man. I hate him. I think you should hate him. He was a really bad guy who was responsible for more death and destruction than you'll probably ever know, far outside the realms of the United States. And... It might be logical to say if he's so bad, if he's so awful, then why give his ideology any room to breathe? Why give it any daylight? To which I'll respond, one, we are not advocating for absolutely anything this guy believes. In fact, we'll probably make fun of it a a lot. I think we already have. Uh, Secondly, you can't truly defeat something. You can't truly fight anything until you understand it. Empathy and understanding are not endorsements, okay? It does not make you weaker to understand where your opponent is coming from. It is not a sign of agreement by studying the ideological base of what the opponent believes. It's the only way to truly dismantle and fight them. And also, it's, like, really, really interesting. And this guy spent, like, quite a lot of time thinking about us. Like, he hated us so much, guys. Like, it really burned his biscuits. And, like, I don't know about you, Jay. I'm kind of curious as to why. Yeah, it's... Certainly a very interesting thing, especially when you consider his background of somebody who could totally just live a regular life of obscene wealth and comfort. Yeah, Bin Laden, like, could have just, like, moved anywhere in the world that would take him, bought giant mansions and filled them with hookers and just done that for the rest of his existence. He chose to bum it in Afghanistan with a bunch of people that he found disgusting and um, fund bombings. Yeah. So we've already talked about the ideology that motivated that. Uh, a Wahhabist religious backgrounds uh, combined with the aggressive uh, beliefs of Qutub. Remember, Qutub's idea was that the Western world is completely incompatible with Islam. Like, if the Western world is around, Islam will be eroded and eventually defeated. And Bin Laden would kind of sharpen this into an idea of a clash of civilizations model. That the Islamic world did declare total war on the West. 
Yeah, you know, since this was a total war, that would mean that attacks on Western civilians in the name of Islam were morally justifiable and even desirable, according to bin Laden. And also attacks on Muslim civilians were justifiable um, because they were collaborators in their view, and collaborators could be killed just as readily. And we shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say this anyway. It's worth noting that this is absolutely batshit insane compared to the beliefs of your average Muslim in the United States and everywhere. Yeah. Again, this guy comes from a very specific part of the Muslim world that is a honestly quite small chunk of it percentage-wise. Yeah, and, you know, we'll be talking, honestly, about 9-11 today, but it's also worth knowing, in total, Al-Qaeda kills way, way more Muslims than they do anyone else, you know, any other religious group. Bin Laden's sort of, I guess you could say his intellectual contribution to this system of uh, Ketubian Jihad is that he would set up Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda would kind of become the McDonald's of terrorism. Basically, if you agreed with Bin Laden's ideology and you were in a country that he wasn't, and you had some guys, and, you know, you sent a letter proving your, like, Wahhabist, Ketubian street cred, and uh, you wanted to say you were part of Al-Qaeda, he would be like, yes, I now dub you the Al-Qaeda of Libya, or Yugoslavia, or Sudan, or wherever. Uh, this is going to enable a quickly global network. We're going to talk about a lot of Bin Laden's attacks, and you'll notice that they're over a quite large geographic spread because he's going to get followers uh, all throughout the Muslim world. This ideology is often going to be, you know, quite... <laughs> got to keep it on the down low. It's going to be probably officially forbidden. But you can't stop people from passing cassette tapes around. Yeah. For those of you who study modern uh, Islamic conflict, you might know that this kind of system of setting up various branches in different countries has kind of become sassooned by ISIS. Um, the story, one of the stories of the last decade is ISIS branches kind of taking up and defeating Al-Qaeda branches across much of the Middle East and Africa. Um, kind of as the, uh, you know... Uh, the Zoomer Jihad, <laughs> if you will, compared uh, to the filthy millennial and Gen Xer Al-Qaeda Jihad. Yeah. I'm going to hell, aren't I? <laughs> now, the ultimate goal of Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda was to use violence to expel America from the Middle East, defeat Israel, and unite the Muslim world. But they didn't really have any detailed strategy for how to achieve this. You know, tactical operations such as hijackings and bombings were not tied to concrete strategic goals, contrary to later claims. You know, one of the big, like, things which kind of leads to confusion about 9-11 is, like, people are like, well, what, what was he actually hoping to accomplish? And he didn't really have, like, a set idea of what exactly would happen afterwards. So, it's... Um... Alice Caldwell Kelly uh, once called Bin Laden a venture capitalist of terrorism, and I, I love that idea, that plans were brought to him and that he often supplied the training and the 
money to do the plans. And again, these plans are, you know, some plane hijackings, car bombing here or there. We'll get into some specifics. After he's kicked out of Saudi Arabia, he mostly goes to Sudan at first. And he uh, establishes his base operation there in a place to train people who would attempt to do these various attacks. But, you know, in Afghanistan, he was fighting the Soviet government. He, he doesn't, like, try and take over Sudan, right? No, he actually has the backing of the government in Sudan at, at the time. You know, they themselves were engaged in some civil conflicts with various rebel groups, and he helped them out a little bit and, you know, provided them with uh, some financial connections, and they gave him safe harbor, essentially. Also, because we absolutely have to mention it, and I would feel awful if we didn't, in this time, in 1993, a guy by the name of Robert Fisk from a newspaper called The Independent uh, put out a brilliant little article called Anti-Soviet Warrior Puts His Army on the Road to Peace, um, which... We've got a picture of it on the YouTube video right now of Bin Laden with, like, the most... <laughs> Jay, Jay, when was the last time you actually looked at the image? Uh, like, it's been a while. I just, I just I put it... it. Look, look at his... Look at his grin. <laughs> look at him! He's... What a fucking dork! <laughs> Not one of the <laughs> prouder moments in the history of the Independence as a newspaper. Oh, this this is truly the nadir of American journalism. Every next time you see some like clickbait BuzzFeed article or some um like uh uh. Washington Post puff piece for a far right leader. Uh, just remember, uh, anti-Soviet warrior puts his army on the road to peace. I'm actually reading a Business Insider Australia article about this. Um, uh, with his high cheekbones, narrow eyes, and long brown robe, Mr. Bin Laden looks every inch the mountain warrior of Mujahideen legend. Yeah. The guy who grew up in, like, comfort in Saudi Arabia is, is a hardcore Afghan mountain warrior. He's talking about, oh, look, this guy used to be shooting at people, and now he's building roads in Sudan with his construction knowledge. It's all with cheekbones, isn't it? Going back to um, the 90s, you know, he would continue to acquire funding through his family stipend until 94, and from various wealthy backers afterwards, many of whom were Saudi millionaires who sympathized with his cause. And... As he began to shift towards America, he came on the radar of U.S. intelligence services. You know, he would be kicked out of Sudan in 96 due to U.S. pressure. And this was what would prompt him to return to Afghanistan, where he forged an alliance with the Taliban, the new people in charge of the country, or well, most of the country. And it's where he would issue a fatwa, essentially just a religious judgment or verdict, 
stating that it's the duty of Muslims to kill American soldiers, civilians, and their allies. Yet the Taliban, many of whom sympathize with al-Qaeda's cause and desire his financial resources, let him resume recruitment and training in the country, and he even briefly basically ran the Afghan National Airline, um, using it mostly just for trafficking drugs, arms, and personnel. I must mention, just to cut in, uh, I just looked this up because I wanted to make sure it was true. But um, while uh, America was getting bin Laden out of Sudan, uh, we bombed a... Uh, <laughs> We, 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 we bombed a uh, pharmaceutical factory, the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory, uh, that apparently was one of the largest um, just producers of life-saving medicine in Sudan that, like, they had been working for, like, four years to build. It had, like, just been opened last year, and we just uh, blew it up because <laughs> we thought they were making nerve gas or something. Luckily, that would be the 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 only time the U.S. would ever strike the wrong target. Yes, the only time the CIA would ever misidentify a target for a U.S. missile yeah. strike. So the U.S. is at this point trying to kill this guy. Clinton knows who he is. Uh, why? Was he? What was he doing? Well, in you know August of '98, Al Qaeda actually conducted a bombing on the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. It was a simultaneous truck bombing, um, and this resulted in the death of over 200 individuals. This would, yeah, this would be the first major attack on Americans by Al Qaeda, and it would earn him a federal grand jury indictment for murder as well as a spot on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. You know, this is, that would prompt, you know, a span of uh, attempts by America to kill him. Um, you know, two weeks later, we launched a missile strike on an Al-Qaeda training base in Afghanistan. Turns out that the missile probably missed Bin Laden just by a few hours. Um, a subsequent plan to capture him with the aid of Pakistani forces was canceled after a coup d'etat in Pakistan, and an attempt by the CIA to kill him by basically just giving some militants in Afghanistan money to shoot an RPG at his convoy, failed when the rocket hit the wrong vehicle. In October of 2000, two suicide bombers aboard a fiberglass skiff detonated themselves alongside the destroyer of the USS Cole, killing 17 Americans. And... It's worth noting with all of these operations. My understanding is that, like, Bin Laden doesn't plan these things. He, he's not necessarily the ideas guy. He's, he, I don't want to call him a figurehead, but he, he is not train. he is not personally recruiting, personally training, and, like, personally coming up with all of these plans. Yeah. Uh, he's more of the money guy. Yeah. Um, it, so, now, like, his money's been cut off at this point, his perhaps $17 million a year stipend. It, um, is he, like, or, you know, he, he still knows people in Saudi Arabia. He wasn't one of the only guys getting uh, 
red pilled on Katubism. Yeah, he's still getting funding from his friends in Saudi Arabia. It's likely that through, you know, shell companies and whatever, he still probably had um, at least shares and business interests elsewhere in the Middle East. And he's also kind of running a part of the um, the, the opium trade out of Afghanistan, essentially. So he's he's getting money through uh, through a few different uh, few different ways. All right, shifting focus now. Uh, at the start of the spring two thousand one, American intelligence services begin receiving warnings from informants and foreign agencies that Al Qaeda is planning a massive attack on U.S. soil. Uh, Egyptian intelligence warns the United States that Al Qaeda had terrorists that had engaged in flight training. And warnings also came from Britain, Italy, Israel, Jordan, and Malaysia. And by summer of 2001, crumbs of information began flowing into the offices of the FBI, CIA, and other agencies, including the aforementioned intelligence provided by foreign nations. Uh, most of that is what the CIA got, along with some reports of unusual activity in American flight schools. This is what the FBI is looking at. A July memo from the FBI office in Phoenix advised headquarters looking into suspicious activity in flight schools. But this information was neither acted on nor shared with the CIA and the White House. Um, later, when the U.S. government starts looking into how 9-11 could have been averted, a lot of the focus is going to go into intelligence agencies not... Uh, communicating well with each other and not sharing information it is objectively true that all of the alphabet soup agencies absolutely hate talking to each other and collaborating at all um you know for example the the in the 80s where like say in nicaragua you have cia backed drug smugglers sh getting shot at by DEA-backed militants, but, um, I don't know if that exactly happened in Nicaragua. That was just an example. Um, I mean, it happened, something similar happened in Syria a few years ago, where you had, you know, skirmishes between CIA-backed, um, militia and ones backed by the Department of Defense. <laughs> oh, so you're telling me, even after the U.S. intelligence restructuring, after, uh, 9-11, this, uh, and creating the NSA out of whole cloth as a new uh, agency to trample the rights of Americans' privacy. Uh, this still happens? From time to time, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. By late summer, CIA Director George Tenet was convinced that a major attack was imminent. You know, FBI, FBI reports had finally begun to reach the CIA. And on August 6th, the CIA briefing titled Bin Laden Determined to Strike in the U.S., was given to President Bush, a warning of a potential attack that may include hijacking. However, the specifics were still vague, and many believed that the attack would be on U.S. facilities and foreign nations, or involve hijacking in order to barter for the release of prisoners, that being a pretty standard hijacking tactic. Yeah, uh, for me, the most damning thing is that, like, Several of the guys who flew the planes into their targets received training in the U.S. and were identified as suspicious at 
those training facilities. Yeah. And the FBI didn't like warn airports about them or anything. Yeah. Um. So like, Jay, just in your personal private opinion, like, do you think they could have stopped this? I think if you make a string of things that went wrong, so to speak, um, you correct those mistakes. I think it's possible. Um, I also think that, you know, there is, uh, it is true to say that, like, we don't know how many reports of suspicious activity the FBI gets every year that turn out to be completely, you know, red herrings. And it's, it's, it is easy after the fact to say, like, oh, well, you knew about this guy beforehand. Why didn't you act on it? Well, if they acted on every single lead they got, I imagine that, you know, the FBI would be knocking on doors all the time. Um, that being said, there are enough incidents. I mean, they, they even arrested one of the hijackers in training, Zacharias, um, in August. That make me think, if they got the decisions right and shared their information, that there would be a decent chance that the attack could have been prevented. Or at least severely, like, less of it. Uh, or, you know, maybe if interrogating Zacharias, he would have broke. Um, I I go back and forth. Like, obviously this is called No One Is Competent, and I am not a fan of the FBI and the CIA, and I am definitely in the mind to make them look as incompetent and awful at their job as possible. But, you know, if they had the power to know about this attack and stop it, it, it would, like, indicate an ability of the CIA that, like, the implications of which would be Orwellian and nightmarish, right? Yeah, and some of the reasons why they don't is because the system we have of, you know, rights and civil liberties is still somewhat intact. Like, they they wanted to search Sicarius's computer, but because they weren't actually, you know, they didn't arrest him for being suspicious, that's not a crime, they could only arrest him for a visa violation, and they didn't get approval to search his computer. And it might be hard to say this, but especially considering what would happen to surveillance and privacy rights after 9-11, I think a lot of them made the right call at certain times. Yeah. Uh, there are other failings on 9-11 that are a lot more damning we're about to get into. So y'all know what happened on September the 11th. Four U.S. airliners are hijacked by Al-Qaeda militants. Two of them are crashed into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. One of them hits the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And a fourth one is shot out of the air by orders of Dick Cheney. <laughs> just anyway. Like a, just like to make it known that I do not endorse the uh, latter theory. Um, Azalea is the only 9-11 truther here. If you did, you have to um. Did you have to watch the Flight ninety three like? I've never seen that movie. propaganda films that. No, as a time as a kid. I should have never. Watched were those that. not out when you were in middle school? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly hope it happened that way. I mean, like, listen, 9-11 trutherism used to be incredibly mainstream in America, you know? It was even so mainstream that there was a massive amount of Americans, uh, even some very important Americans, who thought that Saddam Hussein was involved in it. And, you know, I hear they did a lot of... They, 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 really, they really acted on that information. Yeah, they... Um, uh, 
carried out there, it could be carried out that lead um, to its logical conclusion. We we uh, we live in fucking clown world. Speaking of clown world, uh, I just want to make known, uh, whenever I start reading about the people who hijacked those planes uh, and their backgrounds, I, I really can't help but notice that they are very similar to, like, 70% of the people I went to high school with. Like, upper middle class, fail sons, rich kids, dropouts, screw-ups, who just had nothing better to do but to pump iron, get radicalized, head to a training camp, and get given a mission. Um, It's very worth noting that like um hijacking planes uh like like the, one of the reasons that it was so easy for them to do it is that um you used to hijack planes like like in, in the 70s you know you could go to a go to an airport and look at all the flights to all the places but secretly those were all flights to Havana if you wanted them to be um like it was, it was if someone hijacked a plane it's like ah, i'm gonna get held ransom and it's just gonna be like a whole thing but like no one had ever like flown one of these things into a tower before um my understanding is that uh bin laden and al-qaeda leaders were like kind of inspired by the first um world trade center bombing in like 93 uh that killed like a few people yeah but um yeah, no one had ever really thought to be like, plane is weapon. Well, besides the Japanese, but that's, that, that, that is not, should not be seen as an ideologically <laughs> no. continuity. So that's a matter for a different time. Different podcast. Yeah. Uh, also, the thing that stops um, another 9-11 from happening is the fact that the crew of every plane uh, is now behind a uh, near impenetrable uh, reinforced door and is also probably armed and also like people know that you can fly a plane in a building now and equate hijackings with a life or death situation which it seems that most of the people on these flights did not um, so uh, there will probably never be another 9-11 terrorist attack and every single airport security precaution that you are will ever be made to go through uh, will not be responsible for stopping one, and to our knowledge, have never stopped one, and are not keeping you safe, and are massively on the taxpayer dollars that are taken out of your paycheck forcibly every single month. So just think about that next time uh, you're being uh, molested by airport security. So, Bin Laden, he does 9-11. Now, it's worth noting that he actually did deny responsibility for the attacks, though intelligence quickly linked them to Al-Qaeda's core members and ultimately to Bin Laden himself. He at the least knew of and approved of the plan, though he probably had a minimal role in organizing it. What would happen after 9-11 is that the U.S. would be basically pushed into a state of national fervor. Fear of further attacks, combined with a desire for vengeance and justice, just permeated the mindset of the entire country. We really cannot comprehend how 
just the national psychosis that overtook the nation. Like famously, you've got uh, everyone from uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone at um, South Park to uh, the folks behind the West Wing making programming addressing the events of 9-11 you have an entire genre of country music emerging that would essentially salt the earth of the music scene for like 15 years at least um my favorite example of this kind of thing is um this graphic I always thought it was from the New York Times. I've, I've got it up on the YouTube video. It might not be, but um, of Bin Laden's Mountain Fortress. Oh, yeah. That no, that's actually, what, I think it comes from the Telegraph or another British paper originally. But, yeah, it's, I love that so much. Yeah, it always amazes me how much the Brits were also, like, I mean, internationally there was an outpouring of support after 9-11 there's the famous uh parisian newspaper headline nous sommes tous americans we are all americans like uh tons of international support for the war in afghanistan we're about to jump into but like the literal james bond <laughs> these guys really think that hydroelectric power is is being generated from mountain streams yes. yeah it was like it, it's a literal like james bond villain complex and is nothing like what actually existed. But I, I just love that graphic so much. A system of ventilation ducts brings air into the caves and provides alternate exits. <laughs> every day, just every damn day, just inject it into <laughs> my fucking veins. The first half of the aughts was was truly the, the history restarting uh, after it ended was certainly a uh, yeah certainly a time yeah. to be alive and culturally aware. So how long does it take for the U.S. to work out that this was an Al Qaeda attack and that Bin Laden is the Al Qaeda guy? And that he specifically is the guy who needs to die for it. I, they, they knew that Bin Laden was the head of Al-Qaeda for some time now. And they very quickly put together the fact that Al-Qaeda were the ones behind the attack. You know, they, once obviously attacks take place, um, they are able to identify the hijackers relatively quickly. And then look into all their connections and, you know, their all their phone calls, all their personal connections, all their records, essentially. And it, it all points back to Al-Qaeda. So, yeah. What, what always, like, gets me is that, and probably gets a lot of Americans, is that Bin Laden probably, like, like, it's not like he woke up on September the 11th, like, turning on a news feed, rubbing his hands together, and be like, all right, let's wait for the fireworks. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like, like, even I, like, kind of imagine that happening. Like, he probably didn't know until, like, days later. Yeah, or... Not necessarily days, but afterwards, yes. Final final 9-11 anecdote I will tell. Um, also, sorry if I keep peeking my mic. Uh, new microphone being used now. I'm not going to tell y'all how much it costs, because you would lose what little shreds of respect you have for me. Uh, but my father is um, worked at the Savannah River site, 
uh, SRS for decades uh, doing tritium refinement and working on all sorts of U.S. nuclear bomb shit. Uh, that's where a lot of the info for the Nuclear Warheads episode came from. And, you know, there were multiple attacks like throughout the day. First one happens at, I think, like 8.54, um, and then the second one shortly afterwards. But it was, I think, a while before the Pentagon got hit and they knew where Flight 93 went. And you know, it wasn't clear at the time what was happening, that it, even that it was all planes hitting various spots, um, who was doing this, or that that was the end. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, afterwards, they're just the an utter outbreak of terrorism, paranoia, and people thinking, you know, your middle school in Dubuque is going to be the next uh, target of the demonic, satanic Osama Bin Laden. But my dad is at an actual factual facility that produces material for nuclear warheads. And they were like, yep, gotta shut this motherfucker down. Uh, and he was one of the last people out when they did, because it was like, very quickly, yeah, we gotta leave. So... America finds out that the 9-11 attacks were carried out by a group named Al-Qaeda and that their leader, Bin Laden, and most of them are residing in Afghanistan. And this provokes the United States to issue an ultimatum to the government of Afghanistan called the Taliban, uh, demanding that they hand over Bin Laden all over Al-Qaeda leaders, arrest all known terrorists, and allow U.S. forces into the country to oversee the dismantling of said terrorist network. Uh, fun fact, when I was in sixth grade, I distinctly remember asking my teacher what the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda was, and she could not tell me. <laughs> also, we're not going to get into who the Taliban are, because that is the subject of a future podcast. Indeed. So, just know they're called the Taliban, and they're in charge of Afghanistan as of 2001. Now, the Taliban refused these demands, claiming that there was no evidence linking bin Laden to the attacks. Bin Laden himself, as mentioned, had been clever in not claiming direct responsibility for 9-11. They later offered to try bin Laden in their own courts, or hand him over to a neutral third nation, if the U.S. could provide evidence linking bin Laden to the attack. But the U.S. refused, and by that point, October, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan had already begun. For those of you whose ears perked up uh, when you found out that uh, the Taliban government who had offered to hand over bin Laden, um, yeah, I also only found that out like four weeks ago, and <laughs> I don't know, man. Sounds like a really important thing to know. But anyway, the Taliban badly miscalculate. While they're trying to negotiate with the United States, Operation Enduring Freedom has already begun. And it's worth probably, like, like this is possibly the most competent, like, the first week or so of this operation is possibly the most competent thing that's going to be discussed on this podcast today. Um... Basically, the United States uh, completely overwhelms and displaces the Taliban-Afghan government 
with a very limited amount of actual American soldiers being destroyed. Um, the way they did this is by, one, just aircraft bombing the shit out of Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces starting on October 7th, and uh, only send in a few thousand U.S. soldiers, mostly special forces, uh, afterwards. Uh, they entered uh, in the north uh, because the Taliban hadn't actually secured the northern part of the country, which was uh, being controlled by a group cleverly named the Northern Alliance. Um, American advisors embedded in said Northern Alliance would help coordinate laser-guided airstrikes and bring a level of precision firepower that had never been seen to this country before. Um, but just know that... Uh, this American invasion is in many ways just another part of another Afghan civil war. And that it's a lot of other Afghans getting their hands dirty during this fight. Yeah, you know, the bulk of the fight against the Taliban was actually carried out by the Northern Alliance, while American and British special forces carried by helicopters would launch several raids on Al-Qaeda bases. Um, the city of Mazar al-Sharif would fall in early November, and that would spark a string of Taliban defeats. Kabul itself would fall to the Northern Alliance on November 14th, and pretty much after that, Taliban forces were just surrendering left, right, and center rather than putting up a fight. You know, the result of this was a quick victory and the complete overthrow of the Taliban government, with only 30 American casualties. Bin Laden, however, had not yet been found. And it's worth noting, this is extremely popular in America at the time. I asked basically every adult that I know if they supported the invasion when it happened, and they did. I don't blame them. Uh, if you and I had been adults uh, knowledgeable of Vincent Time, we, I, it's fair to say I probably would as well. Yeah. You know, it, it's very easy after the fact, and you know, the U.S. did a lot of things wrong in Afghanistan, to, to view the decision to go to war as inherently wrong or inherently stupid but it's needless to say it's a fair bit more complicated than that and the u.s had plenty of good reasons to go into the country and it was widely supported now by december of 2001 bin laden was cornered and trapped by u.s and afghan warlord forces in the mountainous area of tora bora alongside the pakistani border you know our intelligence had figured out that was where he likely was and this was backed up by radio intercepts um, U.S. forces consisted primarily of 90 special operations uh, troops led by the Delta Force Major, who is known simply by the pen name of Dalton Fury, and they were supported by uh, two local <laughs> warlords on the pay of the CIA. <laughs> Never change anonymous uh, DOD contacts. Never change. Yeah, you know. Um, Go off, King. No notes. Yeah, most of what we're talking about here actually comes from a report to the um, Senate Committee on Foreign Relations that's titled Tora Bora Revisited. And so, yeah, it's a, I do recommend that for people who want, you know, a full breakthrough of, of the events. It's like 50 pages or something. But um, yeah, Dalton Fury is quite a good, quite a appropriate pen name. <laughs> I, I knew a few Daltons in high school, and um, chuds all, no offense. 
I mean, if you're like, if you're picking your pen name, and it's like, yeah, it's going to be Fury. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the landscape of Tora Bora is both harsh and porous, with tall granite mountains full of deep caves and caverns, which combined with its proximity to the Pakistan border, made it impossible for U.S. forces to fully secure with such limited manpower. Yeah, if you've ever been to Nevada or like the upper Rocky Mountains, very similar terrain. It's dry, it's desertous, you've got precipitous cliffs, and apparently there's tons of caves. And I know what you're thinking, like, it's some mountains. Like The U.S. can secure anything, right? If we have enough time, enough resources, enough manpower. But the manpower is not there. Jay, like... As of December, how many American troops are even, like, in the country? In terms of all soldiers and support personnel and everybody, probably getting up to close to 10,000. Um, but in the area, again, they only have 90 special operations forces. And, and that 10,000, you know, for, for people who haven't, who, who didn't listen to our Soviet-Afghan war episode... Afghanistan's the size of Texas. So that's, it might sound like a lot of people. That's not very many people for the size of the country. That's not half of the amount of National Guard that was sent to secure Joe Biden's inauguration. Yeah. (laughs) We sent more guys to occupy the capital after January 6th than we initially sent into Afghanistan. For reasons we're about to go into, arguably that was the right call, but like, contextually. Yeah. The only thing they can really do is absolutely pound the area with U.S. bombers. And this kills plenty of Al-Qaeda members, but uh, the deeper caves were beyond reach. Now, Dalton Fury, the U.S. major in charge, would request reinforcements, specifically asking for 800 Rangers, but was denied by General Tommy Franks, the overall commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. You know, the general doctrine of this campaign had involved the minimal use of American soldiers, and it had worked so far. Additionally, the U.S. did not want to alienate its local allies through the appearance of a larger American ground presence. I mean, Something that would be a bit ironic, given the events of the uh, subsequent years in Afghanistan, but it's neither here nor there. Subsequent proposals by Fury, such as a plan to send Delta Force members with oxygen gear to climb up the tallest mountains leading to the caves and basically just surprise out the Al-Qaeda members, as well as a plan to use airdrop to landmines to just cordon off the entire area, were similarly shot down. This is Call of Duty-ass bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of the day, Fury's men were limited to making brief probing attacks in Tora Bora. They assisted by warlord soldiers who had very little training and were unwilling to hold advanced positions at night. And I'd like to say for the audience that Jay's typed up assisted by warlords in quotation marks. Yeah. And you know, um, these aren't even, like, the big, like, Northern Alliance warlords, who by that point have, like, pretty decent militia. Um, these were just locals who, like, the CIA found and paid because the Northern Alliance didn't have a big presence in this area. Guys who have been bribed. Yeah. Who are probably shooting at their cousins. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, the surviving Al-Qaeda members use a series of ruses to escape Tora Bora. Lower-ranking members contacted the Americans through one of the warlords, stating they planned on mutinying, surrendering, and turning over Bin Laden, and they needed a ceasefire to carry out their plans. Um, this is a complete diversion. Dozens of Al-Qaeda members end up escaping during said ceasefire, uh, but Bin Laden's not one of them. This just goes to show, though, that... These warlords the Americans are working with are completely unreliable and really should not be trusted with anything. Yeah, on December 14th, as Delta Force troops began a new push into Tora Bora, they were suddenly met by very weak resistance. This Delta Force is only a few hundred guys, right? It's 90. Um, 90 guys. Yeah. God bless them. By the 17th, they had reached the main caves, but had only captured around 20 low-ranking fighters and they found the main area abandoned. It was later determined that Bin Laden and a small group of his followers had fled the area the day prior. Making his way to the Pakistani border, most likely with the assistance of soldiers from those warlord armies who had been under al-Qaeda pay. Now, it's worth remembering, al-Qaeda, especially Bin Laden, have a history in this area going back to the 80s. Bin Laden's wealth, combined with the relative poverty of the region, allowed him to easily keep thousands of Afghans and Pakistanis on his payroll. So, you know, if you assemble any force of men from this area, you're probably going to have some Al-Qaeda informants amongst them. By or before December the 14th, Bin Laden had escaped Tora Bora. And for the next 10 years, the U.S. would maintain an overt and covert search for the guy. Reports and rumors that his whereabouts would trickle into the press. You know, he's in Iran, Indonesia, the Philippines. Uh, most credible sources led believe that he somewhere in Pakistan. Remember, Tora Bora is right on the border, hiding in these mountains and hinterlands of the northern tribal areas of Waziristan, or the vast areas of... Balakistan, I am so, so sorry. But um, <laughs> these are areas that the Pakistani government had little control over. Yeah. Um, I'll remind y'all, we weren't able to kill bin Laden until May 2nd of 2011, almost 10 years after this. It is totally worth saying. It is, it is entirely true that until that operation... Tora Bora was the closest that the Americans ever came to capturing the guy. And it would take another nine plus years to do it afterwards. This is a complete and total failure. And it's especially a failure if, like, I was told as a kid, this is maybe not the way it was pitched at the time, that, like, the entire point of the invasion of Afghanistan was to get Bin Laden. And they didn't do it. They did not, know. They sent in 90 guys to get him, and they didn't do it. So, let's go into why Tora Bora was such a disaster. To explain why the U.S. failed to capture Bin Laden at Tora Bora, we have to look at the doctrines at play during the Afghan War. Now, back during the 90s, actually during the Gulf War, the U.S. had come up with this idea called the Powell Doctrine, named after Colin Powell. You know, memories of Vietnam were still fresh in the minds of American officers, many of whom had served in Vietnam. And... Yeah, served in Vietnam doing things like Colin Powell covering up a giant war crime massacre. <laughs> and, and, 
Yes. <laughs> so, so the starter. By the way, uh, Colin Powell died a few weeks back, and uh, rest in piss, you degenerate bitch. My obituary for you is the same as the obituary I have to many, many people involved in this whole thing, which is that future generations will judge our society for not executing him first. Uh, that's about all I have to say about that. Now, the Powell Doctrine called for the use of overwhelming force. Numbers, air power, resources, everything applied very quickly to achieve a strategic and political end. If, if any of you have looked into the Gulf War, you'll know that um, months before the invasion, the U.S. basically just sat in Saudi Arabia building up forces just constantly. You had a massive invasion force ready to go into Kuwait, large armada in the ocean, and you know, they didn't want another Vietnam, and the way to avoid that was just overwhelm Iraq. This was also very expensive. And as a result, uh, going into Afghanistan, the Powell Doctrine had largely been replaced by a new model designed by Donald Rumsfeld, Cheney, and his associates in the Bush administration. And uh, this instead called for um, a much more limited idea of war, and a war which, due to it being more limited and more cost-effective, could be done in many places. Worth noting, Colin Powell's also in the Bush administration, so he, he like, let's let's not say that like he, he didn't have any like input on, oh, sure. on this strategy because I yeah. imagine he did. Yeah. So, quoting from Torbor Revisited, which is the report that I mentioned earlier, the uh, the Afghan model constructed by Rumsfeld and General Franks in response to the attacks of September 11th stood the Powell Doctrine on its head. Uh, this new template was designed to deliver a swift and economical knockout blow through air power and the limited application of troops on the ground. Instead of overwhelming force, the Afghan model depended on air power and on highly mobile special operations forces and CIA paramilitary teams, working in concert with opposition warlords. It was designed as unconventional warfare led by indigenous forces, and Franks put a ceiling of 10,000 on the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Despite the valor of the limited American troops, the doctrine failed to achieve its most concrete political goals, the elimination of al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So in short, it's a really good strategy if you want to topple a government, but very bad if you want to ensure the capture of individual people. Yeah. This would be made worse because General Franks, the guy who is supposed to be supervising all this, his full attention was not just on Tora Bora. Um, apparently, even as that battle is ongoing, uh, Franks and his aides have been tasked by Donald Rumsfeld uh, with using their experience in Afghanistan to help formulate options for a war in Iraq. Afghanistan is not secured, and Rummy's just like, hey, you want to... You think we can do that, Iraq? You think we can do that, Iraq, buddy? Had Major Fury been given the reinforcements he requested, it is incredibly likely that Bin Laden had been captured or killed in December 2001, and I just want you to imagine that scenario. I'm not saying that the entire U.S. occupation of Afghanistan would have still gone down. I I'm not saying it wouldn't have ended any less disastrously. 
but it certainly could have. And it easily could have happened. That timeline exists. That timeline exists so often throughout the multiverse. And it's just ash. Yeah. So, once again, uh, the CIA would demonstrate complete and total incompetence in finding Bin Laden afterwards. Um, again, this this is like a region... They, they know he's, like, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, like... But it's probably a region, like, close to the size of the state that I'm living in, like, t- filled with mountains but there's no roads for trucks leading up to that are riddled with caves very easy to hide up there um you could say well the cia they're not omnipotent to which i'll respond well they certainly request uh the funding to be so so uh yeah really fucking bad at their jobs but eventually, intel would trickle in. Acting on that intelligence, on May 2nd, 2011, U.S. forces in Afghanistan launched a raid on a compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. Navy SEAL soldiers, carried into the country on helicopters, cleared a compound, killing Osama bin Laden and four of his associates. Bin Laden's body was eventually taken to the carrier USS Carl Vinson, where it was identified and subsequently dumped at sea. The hunt for bin Laden, which had begun before 9-11 even took place, was finally over. We don't have to tell you that in this compound was also secured uh, numerous uh, media, such as various nature documentaries, uh, about 100 episodes of Tom and Jerry, uh, a bunch of Naruto Shippuden that was probably for... um, his son and uh, several episodes of the hentai Bible black and uh, similar materials. Uh, we don't have to tell you that they recovered all of those things, but I want to. So I did. And now, you know, fucking Naruto. Shippuden. Yeah. That's even funnier than the Bible black. Honestly, <laughs> like, can you just like imagine like the guy who had the like being one of like Bin Laden's aides who has to like fucking track into a like Pakistani fucking internet cafe to torrent fucking hentai onto a sip drive <laughs> in 2011? Yeah. The hours that it took. To download that shit. Yep. Now, uh, <laughs> it is a, now it is worth noting that you know we mentioned a few areas in Pakistan. I'm sure that most of our listeners are probably not familiar with Pakistani geography, but like you know, we kind of thought that he was probably in the tribal areas or Balochistan. These are big regions where the government has very little control. Uh, no, he was in a Badabad living in a compound that was literally just a handful of miles away from a major military academy and the residencies of various Pakistani generals. And this is a country which is one of the largest recipients of U.S. foreign aid and U.S. military aid in the world. And he was just kind of living there. So 
the options are A, said Pakistani generals and uh, military personnel are uh, more incompetent than uh, the people who sent the uh, challenger into the air, or uh, B, they knew he was there and uh, they didn't give a shit. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just kind of chew on that while you're at dinner. Also, uh, obligatory fuck the ISI. Always. Fun fact, I know this podcast is beginning to lose any sense of coherence, but Joe Biden was against the Bin Laden raid. So, uh, next time he makes his uh, great next great uh, foreign policy uh, decision, just keep that in mind. Especially if it's invading Haiti, which, uh, 42% chance of happening? What are your, what's your, what's your over-under betting odds on <laughs> well, I, an American invasion? I wouldn't bet on that. I think it's, uh, not overly likely. I think, you know, Bin Laden makes a lot of dumb decisions in regards to foreign policy, but the one thing you can say is that usually those decisions are mo- motivated by his more dovish side than his, than his hawkish person. You you mean you yeah. mean Who you mean Biden? <laughs> you, you said you, you said Bin Laden. Same guy. Same guy. So the 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 grand conspiracy. This is it, it, it's like it's like that good old uh, you know the moon landing is faked. You believe in the moon? <laughs> kind of moments. Yeah. All right. So this podcast has got a bit big and sprawling. Some of y'all might even forget that we spent the first hour just all on Bin Laden's background and his ideology. And I really think it'd be appropriate to end with the failures of Osama Bin Laden. Uh, the U.S. government took an obscene amount of time capturing him. But the man himself uh, was far from the civilization-warping warlord that he made himself out to be. Jay, you spent a lot of time researching Bin Laden's ideology for this, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> too much time. What? what all right, before before you jump into, uh, I'm gonna let you do the rest of these bullet points. But like, what was he like? Uh, what's 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 your vibe? I get a lot of like spoiled rich kid like I'm better. Th- I was told that I was better than everybody religiously and ethnically from birth vibes. Oh yeah, no, he he definitely has a, that level of arrogance and hypocrisy to him that comes from his very wealthy and privileged background. Um, that being said, at least amongst the kind of social circles he interacted with, he seems to have been reasonably charismatic and effective of, you know, convincing people to follow him, in many cases, to the death. So. Oh, yeah. Just like Mao, the subject of our last episode. Yeah. No, I, I do not doubt he was a charismatic guy. Likeable guy. Yeah. Yeah. At least if you fit the right kind of profile for somebody who would fall into his, you know, social sphere. Or that someone that he would deign t- to talk to. Yes. <laughs> because uh, for most of y'all listening, the answer is no. Because again, an incredibly bigoted guy. Yeah. Now, Bin Laden's story is ultimately one of failure. It's become somewhat fashionable after the fact to say that Bin Laden won. Uh, that his goal was not to defeat the U.S. himself but instead to draw the U.S. into a series of Middle Eastern conflicts that would last for years and galvanize the entire Muslim world against America. 
The problem is there's no direct evidence that this was at all his plan. It's really something he just says after the fact. By the way, I, I believe this. This is like a very common like leftist anarchist talking point. I believe this, which is why I get Jay to do the re- much of the research for this podcast. Uh, not, you don't want you don't want Wyatt doing that research. It's not a not a good plan. Yeah, yeah. You know, indeed, Al Qaeda's fight against America in the '90s and early 2000s is characterized by a lack of strategic thinking. Acts of terrorism were meant to bring about outcomes. But how exactly they were to bring about those outcomes was left mostly unexplained. Yeah, like, how the heck does blowing up the USS Cole partially, like, fervor any of his goals? Does it make anyone flock to his banner? Does it make the U.S. government collapse? It's, it's, it's just a thing they did because they wanted to do it in many ways. Yeah. On the one hand, America is now beginning a reorientation away from the Middle East. This is, though, caused more by the rise of China as our primary strategic threat than it is by events in the Middle East itself. You know, the region itself is still deeply divided, far from being unified into some sort of grand anti-American co- coalition, a power is divided up amongst several powerful nations. Saudi Arabia, if anything, has become more secular under the current crown prince, and relations between Israel, the hated enemy of Al-Qaeda, and the Gulf Arab states have actually thawed in recent years. And it, the most significant resistance to America in the Middle East comes at the behest of Iran and its Shia Muslim allies, not Al-Qaeda or the Sunni militant groups it inspired. And while Al-Qaeda lives on in places such as Yemen and in several African nations, the scope of its operations have become far more local, with the franchises embroiled in near wars and almost entirely abandoning the idea of some sort of grand war against America. In other words, Bin Laden's dreams seem no more realistic now than they did at the start of the millennium. Final question that I have to ask, and this is more of like a, a free, uh, th- a, a free uh, discussion point. Um, I and my, sp- you know, everyone's got their own uh, sort of macabre interests. A lot of people love true crime podcasts. Uh, maybe you slow down uh, when the when you pass a traffic accident to see how gruesome the pile up is um you know know, everybody like has some sort of fascination with things they shouldn't be fascinated with um i really enjoy is a wrong word but i study fascists i I spend a lot of time uh doing it partially because of where i grew up and where i live and partially because of uh, how our society's been going uh, lately uh QAnon, the base uh Proud Boys, Siege Pill Motherfuckers, Turner Diaries, Patriot Prayer, the, the Militia Movement, Ruby Ridge, just inject it, like, all into my veins, all day. I spent a lot of time studying it, figuring out how to combat it. Um, stu- And it is amazing how similar fascists are throughout um, the decades, how similar that ideology can be, 
uh, even if the in-group that they are promoting, remember, fascism is kind of the logical, like, extreme of the veneration of an in-group versus out-group mentality. Um, I, I've i made this observation a few times, and I've, this, I've asked this question a few times as I kind of learn more about uh, extremist Islam and, uh, say, Ketubism. Uh, do, would you call Osama bin Laden a fascist? And the reason I say so is that, you know, there's a lot of thought in these um, organizations about uh, a glorious martyrdom, a glorious death, uh, very similar to the death cult aspects of fascism. You have concepts like the glorious past, the all-powerful enemy, and, and just uh, way too many similarities that I'm casually comfortable with. Yeah, you know, if you'd asked me this and, you know, a few years ago, I might have said no back when I mostly stuck with the more narrow definition of fascism as being a, a political movement originating in Europe in the early 20th century and having the characteristics we associate with places such as Italy and Germany under you know Mussolini and Hitler. But... Looking at it now, there are certainly many similarities. The ones that you mentioned and just the general idea of this sort of clash of peoples that is you know, inherent to the world and that you, you and your group has to triumph over the enemy or else you face annihilation. Fundamentally, what's the difference between... Uh... Bin Laden saying that the Muslim world is in a clash of civilizations with the West than with American white nationalists saying that the race war is uh, like destined to one day come. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think it is, you know, for pretty fair to say that they are de definite, um, definitely a lot of fascist elements in, uh, in, uh, with Bin Laden and Al Qaeda as a whole. These guys aren't different. Uh, they're not new. Uh, they're not novel. Um, you can meet this guy uh, in many nations, in many cities, uh, growing up in many high schools. Uh, they're all around, and uh, they can often grow up uh, in the right conditions uh, to be pl plenty of fine people, but the right amount of privilege, the right amount of radicalization, the right amount of opportunity. All these guys are the same. To wrap up, I want to just read off a few numbers. Numbers like over 2,400, the amount of United States combat fatalities in the war of Afghanistan. Numbers like over 20,000 American servicemen wounded. Numbers like well over 65,000 Afghan military and police killed. Numbers like over 47,000 civilians killed. Conservative numbers links the war from 2001 to 2021 to well over 171,000 deaths.
And again, those are conservative numbers. Imagine how many of those could have been avoided if it weren't for hasty tactics and barely tested theory. Imagine how many could be avoided if the U.S. government had simply allowed the Taliban to hand over bin Laden as they had sworn to do. Again, maybe it would have been just as bad. Maybe things still would have been fine. Maybe things still would have been awful. But... Whenever someone tells you that the Afghan war started out well, that things were on the up, when you remember how popular it was and you remember how much support there was, just remember, even at the height of this project, even at the beginning, it wasn't well executed, it wasn't well planned. Even though on paper uh, casualties were low and victory was swift, it was building the foundation of a house of rot that would become one of the greatest embarrassments of the American empire. But that will be another episode of the no one is competent podcast. Not the next one, just one eventually coming up. Uh, Jay, would you like to tell the boys grills and non-binary bills? Uh, what our next episode is going to be. Of course, our, our next episode is the rather entertaining uh, situation regarding Operation Eagle Claw. If you know of what Eagle Claw was, then you should know why you should look forward to it. And if you don't, well, then I, I would say it's it, it, it's worth keeping it a surprise, maybe. It's, uh, it's an entertaining story. Yeah, some real... Fu- it- it's uh, basically a Call of Duty level uh, placed into the real world and then actually happening the way a Call of Duty level would uh, in reality. <laughs> it is utterly delightful. So once again, I am Azalea, as at Azalea Wyatt on Twitter, YouTube Wyatt the Word Weaver. Jay is Jaharis48 and Jaharis on uh, YouTube and, and Twitter and YouTube respectively. You can contact the podcast on YouTube or no one is competent at gmail.com. Again, we urge you, leave us a review, leave us a rating, leave us a like, preferably on multiple platforms if you got the time. Uh, we spend hours every week putting this podcast out. It comes out every other Friday on the dot 7 a.m or 8 a.m frankly i forget est of course our music is done by the legendary sam bryce oh another thing you can contest about um we've been we're, this is episode eight uh or or eight yes it's been enough that i'm starting to lose track uh, we have a bunch of the next episodes slotted in and, and planned but as you can see we've covered a very broad uh, subject matter here so far it's going to get even more eclectic as we move on I assure you but we would love to hear requests what would you guys like to hear which podcast episode has been your favorite that information will let us know what 
we should be serving y'all as far as content. Or at least I'd be curious to hear. Jay, you got anything to say before we send off the people? No, that's about it. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's Jay. I'm Azalea. Y'all be good, folks.